This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. This is uh, John Paul McDuffie from the Management Department at Wharton. I'm here with Stephen J. Gursky, who is the Vice Chairman of General Motors. Steve, welcome to Wharton. Thanks, John Paul. Pleasure to be here. So, well, first of all, congratulations on some of the positive news from GM in the recent past. I looked up a few statistics, uh, 7.6 billion in earnings in 2011, global sales grew by 40%, market share stabilized at around 20%, uh, you know, more solid prices for vehicles, more solid profits, so congratulations. Thanks. Um, you were a critic for years of the old GM, now you're in the new GM. So, you know, against a backdrop of a lot of recent successes, but I'm sure some challenges, tell us what's changed, what hasn't changed, given that kind of unique perspective that you have. Well, I think what's changed is the company's focus on the customer is changed. Uh, and we operate in a complex ecosystem with the customer in the middle. And there's a lot of stakeholders around it that need to operate efficiently to make that work, whether it's shareholders, dealers, suppliers, work unionists, union, trade union people, or what have you. And um, for the last few years, we've been able to make that work, operate in balance, keep the customer in the middle, and keep everybody focused on the customer. And that leads to higher revenues for your cars, uh, stabilizing our growing share. Our share is actually growing around the world, uh, and satisfaction that's... Uh, increasing. So, so far it's working and that translates into record profits. We're not taking anything for granted. We sold as many cars around the world as Volkswagen did and they made twice the amount of money that we did. Wow. So while our profits are at record levels, our return on sales is something we still uh, strive to do better at. Uh, there's a recent Wall Street Journal article with Dan uh, Ackerson, your CEO, and a quote that I took down here is he said, the good news about the GM bankruptcy is it only took 39 days. The bad news about the GM bankruptcy is it only took 39 days. Mm -hmm. How does that map onto your experience? I guess that suggests that uh, you know there's still some changing to do. Yeah, it's it's pretty clear when you look at our return measures that we're not where they need where we should be or where we think we could be. So there's still a lot of work to do in changing the culture of the organization and improving our and continuing to focus us on the customer. And part of this is getting the new product programs to work their way through, but part of it is how do you treat your customers? I mean, today, J.D. Power initial quality statistics came out, and GM did the best they ever did. So that comes out. That's a result of a lot of hard work, and hopefully that will lead into better customer acceptance, more share growth, more revenue per car, things like that. So there's still work to do. There's still a mindset that needs to be changed, not just here, but everywhere in the world, in other parts of the world as well, So where we're facing challenges. Let me ask you a little bit about uh, Europe. Europe's in the news and on the minds of, of a lot of Americans, certainly seeing the economic trouble there. And for you, with your role as uh, chairman of the supervisory board at Opel, GM's uh, affiliate in Europe, uh, that's very much on your mind, I'm sure. Uh, the, the way I want to ask you this question is, is harking back to uh, 2009 when GM was seriously considering selling Opel to Magna, a large supplier. And I know that you were one of the advocates for keeping Opel as part of GM's global portfolio. So there's obviously a set of difficulties ahead to, to right the ship and fix things at Opel. But what was the strategic rationale for keeping Opel within GM then? 
And has anything changed since then to affect your view of that strategy for either for better or for worse? So there were two schools of thought on the board. And, and you're right, I was a proponent of keeping Opal uh, because I thought it's important to have a window on what's going on in Europe. Europe is typically the market that is the most forward-thinking in terms of CO2 and emissions. It's a very high-tech market in terms of new technology uh, being rolled into the car, and the customer is very sophisticated and it's very competitive. So I think it's important uh, because I view Europe as being somewhat of a leading indicator of what's going to come in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So to have a window there, uh, to get, help scale your global programs, I think that's important. And to be exposed to that technology in that market, I think, is important. Um, there was another school of thought that came together on the board, which said the deal, as structured, wasn't that good a deal either. Mm -hmm. And we were better off waiting until, frankly, uh, improve the operations and create more options for yourself. So does that mean that if things don't improve enough, uh, GM could be out looking for a better deal for Opal? Or I think the basic message is we're in this, we're going to fix this, we're going to do what it takes to fix this. And it's important. Opal is a critical part of GM. And frankly, we need to make them more a part of GM. Opal is a 6% share company trying to compete with a 20% share company, namely Volkswagen. Yep. Uh -huh. How does a 6% share company compete with a 20? Well, one, they rely on the scale, the resources of the global organization. Two, they rely on partners where they can to fill in holes where they can. Yep. And that's the strategy we're executing. Opal can't be an island unto itself. It needs to, we got big resources in the global GM organization, and Opal needs to leverage that to be successful. Okay. So bring it closer rather than yes. uh, further away. Uh, let me build on that with a question that's uh, a bit more uh, region-specific for, for Europe. I, I think you were quoted as saying the problems of GM in Europe are more than a company problem. They're an industry problem, mm -hmm. more that, than can be solved by GM or any company alone. And so given that there's both problems of overcapacity and uh, you know, depressed consumer demand, I mean, what can competitors in a very competitive industry in a region, which, I mean, as we know, watching Europe try to get their act together about the Eurozone and the Greek situation, is tough to get a kind of coordinated view. How can, and how can competitors in an industry in a region work together on a problem like this? And how does GM take some leadership in that effort? Well, excess capacity is an industry-wide problem. We can deal with some of it on our own, but others have to... Uh, own up to it as well. Uh, there are some ideas being put forth that maybe there should be an EU fund, so to speak, to an industry-type fund to basically create the safety net that's needed to facilitate this excess capacity coming out of the industry. Uh, it's been slow to gain traction, but I think almost in a way the worse it gets over there, the more ideas like this will uh, uh, gain traction. Are there any ideas similarly around stimulation of demand or... Well, Europe did this uh, stimulation of demand, this uh, we call it cash for clunkers a few yep. years ago. Yep. It artificially boosted demand and some would argue it basically delayed, prolonged the issue. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's really, demand is pretty weak. Yep. Frankly, in some markets, it's actually continuing to get weaker. Mm -hmm. uh, at some point, the companies or the players are going to have to own up to this. And yeah, the decisions are going to be difficult. But more difficult is continuing to lose a billion a year, and more difficult than that is putting the enterprise at risk, and we don't want to do that. So yep. we'd rather take steps now. Uh, 
My last question, which, which touches on your OPAL experience, is really more a culture and change question. Uh, but I understand that one of the things that you worked with the OPAL management on was, uh, if I've got this right, canceling some raises for white-collar workers in advance of talks with the union and the blue-collar workers about wage and benefit cuts. And that seemed, uh, to me at least, like a reasonable way to emphasize the message we're all in this together. You know, we all have to have some shared sacrifice, break down some of those barriers between white-collar and blue-collar workers, which are all too common, certainly here in the U.S., um, but I understand that the reaction was pretty negative. Um, I guess I'm wondering, did you imagine a different outcome, and how has that experience affected your thoughts about bringing about change in a big company, big ecosystem, yeah. I guess, uh, either in Europe or in the U.S.? Yeah. John Paul, it all goes back to how do you change the culture of an operation that's lost $14 billion over 10 years? And the last thing you want is for them to the people to think that it's okay to lose a billion a year. So everything we do revolves around communicating that it's not okay. So we change the leadership of Opal. We change the supervisory board where we put a lot of GM insiders, senior insiders on the supervisory board, basically to make sure they knew Opal is not an island unto itself. It's part of the GM family. We started to change the management team over there, put new faces on the ground, bring in people from outside to get new perspective, perspective that they haven't seen before. We did zero out their bonus. Uh, it was a shock to the system, yep. uh, and yeah, it didn't go over well. I wouldn't expect it to go over well, but how do you look your labor constituents across the table right. and say, well, we need help from you, but oh, by the way, we're giving raises on the other side. It's something that's it's almost disingenuous, so we need to, uh, and we're going to continue to see actions that are going to challenge the status quo, can challenge the conventional way of thinking over there. Great. Let me ask you a, a change of pace here, a, a product and a, a kind of new new area, the, the Volt. Um, so in January, when you spoke at the Automotive News Conference, you said it would uh, probably take till May of June of the year to see what the trend was going to be with the Volt and whether consumers were starting to respond. Um, I looked it up, I guess, by the end of May, 7,000 volts uh, outselling Corvette, which a number of news uh, outlets have commented on. And I saw one uh, speculation that maybe we need a new song about Little Red Volts or something. Um, but uh, that's ahead of last year's pace, uh, still behind your goal of 45000 for this year. Uh, I guess my question is kind of a general one, not so much just on, on sales statistics, but what do you think is affecting consumer perceptions of the Volt right now? And what do you think would be most likely to change those perceptions? So let me start with, I think the Volt is dynamite. My wife has a Volt, my mother has a Volt, my wife's aunt has a Volt, three of our best friends have Volts. I mean, anybody who drives this car loves this car. Yeah. Volt is bringing more BMW owners to the GM family than Cadillac is right now. Wow. Customer satisfaction on the Volt is higher than any product we sell and frankly is higher than Porsche. So we're pretty excited about this and what yeah. it can do for GM and the brand. Yeah. That said, I don't think consumers really know how to buy a product like this or a Nissan Leaf, for that example, where you're paying for most of the energy costs up front in yep. the form of a battery, yep. right? So your upfront costs a lot higher. Your operational costs are a lot lower. Fleets would get it yep. because they focus on cost of ownership and cost of operation. But the average consumer, I'm not sure, gets it so fast. And um, so it's the early adopters that are starting to play this. And I think as 
word of mouth gets out, as people understand how these products work and what you're paying for and how you get. I mean, my mother hasn't been to the uh, gas station three months. I mean, she hasn't been. She's nervous that if the gas sits in the tank too long, is it going to ruin something? But uh, so I think it's just a different way of uh, owning and operating a car. I don't think the economics justify themselves right now for a certain subset of buyers it would, sure. but it's really, it's about new technology, it's about what's coming in the future, and I think the cost of these batteries are coming down. Yeah. And as they do, they'll become more affordable. Yeah. I but was going to say, some of those folks probably have plugged into one of those calculators you can find on yeah. the internet and, and seen, okay, well, it's an eight-year payback, and yeah. do I want to wait that long? But I would argue the early buyers of the Prius, if you plugged in your calculator, that didn't work either. True. So it's a different type of consumer that's buying this, someone who's more eco-friendly at first uh, than pure financially driven. But over time, we'll see. We'll see where it goes. And I guess what's important is we have to play in a number of these. We have gasoline engines, which are getting better. We have diesels. uh, And frankly, we're bringing some diesels to the U.S. We have natural gas. We have pure EVs. And we have extended range, and we'll have plugins as well. So we're going to have a variety. We're going to have to play because we don't entirely know where the consumer is going to go here. It's partly a function of government support. It's partly a function of where's infrastructure going to be, but uh, we want to be able to be there. Yeah, it does seem like we're in an all-of-the-above world for a while. We don't want to rule out uh, any options. Mm -hmm. Just as a follow-up on that, I mean, do you think the political fuss about the Volt as a symbol of various controversial topics uh, hurt sales right now, or...? Is it a, a, an irrelevance to the serious buyer? I think it's largely irrelevant. It does hang over it, just like the political uh, overtones hang over the rest of the company. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's out there. Uh, we seem to get more of it than the Nissan Leaf does, although they get the same political benefits that we get. Yeah. So, yeah. Let me jump to another uh, kind of in-the-news uh, topic here and just ask you a quick social media question. So... I understood GM pulled its ads from Facebook recently, and I'm wondering what kind of assessment that was based on. Are you concluding that social media doesn't really sell cars or doesn't sell GM cars? Or uh, Our chief marketing officer spends a lot of time looking at uh, payback and productivity of the different advertising media. Yeah. Uh, he's not ignoring social media at all. It's just where does he want to play in social media, and uh, given the budget constraints that he has, and... Uh, he, his view was he could get bigger bang for his buck and somewhere else. Okay. Call it Twitter, call it uh, MySpace or what have you. So there are other places to do that. So it's his view, his yeah. opinion. Fair enough. Uh, so let me end with this, and uh, I guess it's, it's a little bit back to the, my beginning question, but uh, what's the one or two things about the new GM that you wish people knew that either they don't know, they don't appreciate it sufficiently, or they're choosing not to know, like they're blocking it out? Uh, again, from your vantage point of having been outside and now inside this very interesting company. I think we make great cars. I think people don't appreciate because people left GM and they haven't come back. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we've seen whether it's with the Volt or the Cruise or the Sonic or the new Spark that's coming out and the new Cadillacs, if, we, if people get in and drive our cars, uh, they will be uh, very satisfied and amazed at how far we've come. And, and people sit in the Volt and they drive the Volt the first time. They said, wow, this is a Chevy. They can't believe mm-hmm. it. Yep. And I think we got great stuff. And by the way, this great stuff was on the drawing board before the bankruptcy. So it's not like 
right after the bankruptcy, the switch flipped and GM figured out how to make good cars. They've been doing that. But now it's about the good cars are getting on the road. We want to get people in the seats. We want to have confidence in our ability to sell it. We feel good about our product. We're selling with confidence. We're getting higher prices for our cars. And uh, we're supporting the customer. And basically, uh, that's what it's all about. Sounds good. Thanks, Steve. John thanks very much. Yep. This is great. Yep. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.